Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And we're talking about sort of behind the scenes type of magic in Hollywood this week. And today we're talking about visual effects, you know, known by the cool kids slash like everybody is as VFX. And I had thought, I was under the impression, the very distinct impression that we had gotten like a specific request to tackle this topic of women in visual effects in Hollywood uh, and, you know, all around the world where people are working on visual effects. It turns out we just got a letter talking about another episode from a woman who works in VFX and is just like, oh, by the way, I love your women in Hollywood episodes because I work in VFX. So, dear listener, I think her name was Christina. Even though you didn't request it, this one's going out to you. And for people who have been fans of our STEM series, mm-hmm. Women in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, this is a STEM job in Hollywood, something that I would not have considered STEM at all, but it very much requires a lot of those skills. So it really ties in with a lot of things that we've talked about on the podcast before in terms of gender gaps, glass ceilings, STEM jobs, representation on screen, how the images that we see and influence our self-perceptions are manipulated behind the scenes. So let's talk about VFX, which honestly, Caroline, I knew next to nothing about going into this. So, well, so there's visual effects and special effects. And for the most part, they kind of go hand in hand. They're like siblings. You know, they're very similar, but not the same. Maybe they have the same nose or something, but they're not quite the same person. So visual effects are what happen after the movie has been shot, after you've got the film, so to speak, or after you've got the digital product completed. Visual effects is when you go back in and you add or manipulate things. You do things like animation or a visual cleanup, things that cannot be caught on camera. Whereas, yes, these count as like special effects, but special effects can also be the things that happen during shooting. So maybe it's like crazy monster makeup or something to that effect that while it's not a natural thing that would happen just on its own, it is a, an effect that can be captured during filming. So, so got- way, way, way more intensive, like Instagram yeah. process. Yeah, super, super filter. So we are when we are gramming our photos, kind of doing a little, a tiny. <laughs> tiny bit of VFX. Yeah, so yeah, if I'm uh, taking an Instagram selfie and I put on lots of makeup, that's the special effects. But when I go in after and I add a bunch of filters and take out my pimples and take out my under eye circles, that is intense and extreme visual effects. And it's it, all of this is part of the post-production process in film, which also involves things like editing footage, adding voiceovers and sound effects, going in and creating the score, all of that. And so, like, I just I read the words creating the score and I just imagine John Williams. And now I have the Indiana Jones soundtrack in my head and I'm just loving it. Everything's great. But the visual effects artists obviously are not John Williams. Correct. They're not creating the score. What they're doing very simplistically are things like drawing concept sketches, 3D modeling, uh, recreating those sketches in 3D models on computers. Oh, gosh. And then that imagery would be used, obviously, in the footage. Yeah, and so that means that they can insert things like a lion running through 
fields and forests. I'm, this is a very happy lion. Um, but that's the only thing they can do. Right? Only lions, only forests. Listen, if you want a monkey in a jungle, sorry, go somewhere else. You're out of luck. Or, you know, it can be things like a mountain. Um, some things that jump to mind are, are movies like, I mean, obviously something like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, where you've got all sorts of visual effects added. You've got entire armies of orcs, like crazy things like that. Um, but it's not just those very obvious visual effects that you see on screen. You're like, of course, that's, there's not literally an army of orcs like coming over this giant meadow. It's it's smaller and more subtle things, too. Things that I literally did not know existed. And one of those things is called beauty work. And this is so interesting because it's essentially like the photoshopping and airbrushing that we talk about and frankly complain about and protest in magazines and advertisements and stuff like that. But it's going on in your movies, too. Yeah, this article in Mashable that we were reading about uh, apparently took years to put together because the people in the industry doing this beauty work, these very specialized VFX houses that do it, were so resistant to talk to anyone on record about it and continually throughout the interview process reiterated how the journalist was not to name any of the names that that they were mentioning because, I mean, it would essentially be outing these actors who aren't just older actors. We're talking young ingenues as well who are getting this kind of on-camera work, in quotes, done. So that might be slimming, de-aging, enhancing faces and bodies, essentially removing any kinds of blemishes and lying to all of us who are in the movie theater. Well, yeah. And that's what's so interesting that um, one of the people quoted, an anonymous VFX artist quoted, was saying, yeah, nobody in a movie looks that way in real life. Like even even the beautiful young ingenues, even if they're doing nothing but eating kale and drinking water, that's still it doesn't matter. They're still going to go in a lot of the time and do nips and tucks. They even cited a crow's feet transplant. Apparently there was some actor in some big action movie who didn't like it when there was a close up of him squinting into the sunlight. But to totally remove his crow's feet would have been unnatural, right? You squint, you get lines next to your eyes. So they literally went in and took these squint lines from a younger actor and put them on his face. And in this article, they talked about how and I, I kept reading this article thinking, this isn't real. Like, uh, this can't be real. This has got to be like a weird myth, right? No, it's 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 so true. And they talk about how even in some cases, actors or actresses will go into the VFX studio and sit shoulder to shoulder with the artist being like, OK, take out that dimple, take out that blemish, do this, do that, working with them to craft this imaginary person that we then see on screen. Yeah, and and the one A-list name that was dropped is Brad Pitt because where you can see this beauty work most on display or most obviously on display I should say, is in uh, the curious case of Benjamin Button and this was what was used to have the young Mm. super hot, like River Runs Through It Mm. Brad Pitt prancing around on screen where you're like, oh my god (laughs) He's back. <laughs> oh. And then, of course, like baby 
Baby Brad Pitt and old man Brad Pitt. That, my friends, is the beauty work we're talking about. Yeah, no, I did because I had always wondered, like, w- watching Benjamin Button, obviously there's VFX work going on, There, in addition to special effects, um, because obviously you have Brad Pitt going from a very old man down to a baby, so there's got to be some movie magic, obviously. Um, but there is that scene when, like, Thelma and Louise era hunky Brad Pitt walks through the doors of the dance studio and he's enveloped in this like soft golden light and I'm like what witchcraft made this happen what like black magic who what did we have to cook in a cauldron and and how can we repeat this this is wonderful he's just a really good method actor caroline yeah so method um but yeah so uh, no no idea that that was going on but that is also an example of vfx it's anything from going in and slimming and trimming and, and de-aging and crow's feet transplanting all the way up to inserting a giant orc army on your screen but before we had people doing a lot of this on like giant max with super fancy computer programs we had what were called optical effects which were the same kinds of effects created through science here comes the stem part of the show friends that's right the science of light uh and this is coming from a very interesting article in the mary sue by jennifer lee she looked at a couple of lady pioneers in the optical effects uh early vfx days and lee points out that not surprisingly most of the people doing this work in the early days until about the 1970s were dudes but we get some women, some lady VFX pioneers at Lucasfilm's Industrial Light and Magic. They had the most well-known optical effects department. And you might know them from things like Star Wars, that small independent series. And these uh, departments would be split into two main areas. You would have camera, which were generally handled by the dudes, and then lineup, which was where the, like, three women were and they used what were called optical printers which were essentially cameras attached to projectors so what did these lady lineuppers do they would create math intensive instructions for the optical printer cameraman to shoot a collection of elements like a live action background model spaceships explosions etc into one final shot. So again, here comes so much STEM in here. I mean, the the Mary Sue um, article gets into some nitty-gritty detail of how these women would have to do perform all of these special equations to figure out exactly how to make the light hit this set and the camera lens and the exact kind of way to make these incredible effects that obviously we would probably be doing on computers now. So the job required that STEM knowledge within optical effects. And you had to know that machine inside and out. Not to mention the job was a pressure cooker. They talked to one woman who said that over the course of working like a million hours on this one project, she screwed up twice and she got a very stern talking to. I mean, there was just no room for error, basically. And uh, Lee cites a couple of pioneers. And it's funny because I'm so used to, with Sminty episodes, Kristen, when we talk about pioneers... If we're not going back to the Greeks, we're at least going back to the Victorian era. But, of course, there was no such thing as a movie with special effects in the Victorian era. 
So we go back to really about this era that we're talking about, about the 1970s. And Lee talked to Peg Hunter and Mary E. Walter. So Peg Hunter was hired by feminist, uh, Lee specifically points out, feminist producer Rose Dwinian to do lineup on Return of the Jedi. She was the second woman hired, so she wasn't the first, but... Hunter was the first to actually stick it out. Apparently, when she came in, people were still bad-mouthing the woman who'd been there before her. And so she was like, oh, I better make a good impression. Oh, and that's new significance for one of my favorite childhood films. I know that purists are like, oh, Empire Strikes Back is totally the best. But listen, when Christmas rolled around and TBS would show the Star Wars trilogy all day long, back to back, I was always pumped about Return of the Jedi. I know it's because of the Ewoks and their teddy bears, and people think that that's gimmicky. But listen, I was a kid. I used to have a boss that looked like an Ewok. <laughs> what of my previous jobs. Was that, was that VFX or just, just genetics? I don't know. Maybe it was really advanced beauty work. <laughs> Maybe he was wearing a suit, a VFX suit. But, you know, being that this is sort of a STEM or STEAM, if you include art into it, a STEM or STEAM environment, it should become as no surprise that there's the whole issue of like a bro-y, macho dude culture. It's a steamy, steamy. bro culture. Oh, that just sounds like a locker room or something that needs to be 409 or Cloroxed or whatever. Uh, but but uh, Hunter told Lee that, yes, there was indeed a macho environment, but the thing is, it wasn't just like... Anti-woman, we hate you. Get out of this room, lady, and go make us a sandwich. It was so macho that it was intimidating to both men and women. Like there were, there was apparently a a very heavy air of machismo going on in these rooms. But helping to thin out that air, uh, one woman, Mary E. Walter, quickly followed Hunter in her job at Industrial Light and Magic. But she'd previously worked in a number of different types of jobs, sort of working her way up the ranks at the Westheimer Company in Hollywood around a bunch of old, crotchety World War II-era cameramen who were, she said, openly hostile to the idea of women taking their jobs. Uh, Apparently, there was no concept of, like, we hire openly and we consider the best man or woman human person for the job it was just like no it's you're taking men's jobs actively and walter actually got her start in optical effects specifically by being trained by another lineup woman benita nelson so even though uh there were lots of dudes doing the work who could have helped her out it w- it took another woman training her in this work for her to get her start and even today for vfx artists that kind of apprenticeship is important for getting in the door as well so training before you even get into say a dream lucasfilm type of job you usually get a bachelor's in computer graphics or art with some experience in computer programming. And even if you're not a math whiz, it just really helps to have a grasp of trigonometry, applied mechanics, and basic algebra. I mean, you know, Guess what? same, same, same C's for being a professional lady podcaster. Absolutely. But it also helps to know how the eye works. So knowing that what you put on the screen 
has to look natural, knowing, understanding movement, understanding how bodies and objects move, but also understanding how the landscape behind a body or object will move as you turn the camera. Um, but most importantly, obviously, you have to have that eye for artistic detail, which ties into, of course, understanding how things move and how they look when they move. So you might assume that you need some kind of fancy art degree in order to get that, train that eye for artistic movement. But keep in mind, if you get an expensive one of those, you're likely going to be starting your job hunt off in the hole, at least according to filmmaker Mary Liz Thompson, who was talking to IndieWire about how her career path was really defined by just like finding any job. It wasn't going straight for the dream job. It might have been a a little bit of a meandering course. And sometimes, as she mentioned, putting up with sexual harassment to get the job that, I mean, just get something under her belt. Yeah. And so rather than pursuing exactly the career path that she wanted, she found that she was not really off ramping, but sort of just taking different types of jobs than going into post-production specifically or filmmaking specifically. Um, But meanwhile, she was talking about uh, a German filmmaker friend who came to Los Angeles and was able to intern for a year and have all of her expenses covered by her government, which is an investment that let her progress more easily. And I mean, this is hardly specific to VFX or post-production in the film industry. I mean, it's kind of like any applied arts job. If you shell out Boku bucks for an expensive degree, I mean, you've got to pay that back. You've got to worry about finances and money. And so that means that you're not as freed up to pursue the exact artistic or in this case, fusion of artistic and STEM job that you really, really want. It's like you almost have your passion for it has to be overwhelming. It has to be louder than the voice saying, hey, you've got to pay your bills. And even if you get the internships and apprenticeships and put together a strong reel to get you in the door at, say, a company, a studio, or even just starting off as a freelancer, the money that you get is going to just depend on where you are and what you're working on. Um, for instance, junior VFX supervisors earn an average of $2,500 a week, which doesn't sound half bad, uh, but top supervisors can make tens of thousands of dollars every single week. But this all depends on whether you're working for a company, a studio, or as a freelancer. And it also depends on studio budgets, the cycle of making movies. And this industry is, like many jobs like this, moving farther and farther to the freelance side, which means you're probably going to miss out on certain benefits, on regular pay, on job protection. Because as a freelancer, you can get benefits through the industry group visual the visual effects society and if you're working for a post-production company and you're lucky you might get some regular office worker benefits if you're even luckier you might even get maternity leave but this is another one of those jobs where you are expected to work at least 10 hours a day under high pressure deadlines with lots of travel and if we're being realistic, a lot of people that because I this is a situation where, like, I read the comments on the articles. I usually don't. I try not to. But it was fascinating to read people's takes on this. That like, no, realistically, especially if you're like in the thick of a project, you're going to probably end up working days that veer more towards 
16 hours at a time just to get the work done, just to prove that you're a team player, and honestly, to, to try to secure your job. And it's a job that isn't necessarily secure because industry-wide, even though so many films and big films rely on VFX, the situation isn't super great for the artists making that movie magic happen. Um, speaking to Animation World Network in March 2015, Steve Parrish said it's a cutthroat globalized business at the beck and call of the six big movie studios. They demand profit and lots of it. And, and this was a really interesting part of the industry that I just hadn't thought about before in terms of how, like a lot of other creative services, if you were working for a firm, you, it's a, it's a bidding process essentially. And you have to outbid the other firms and outbidding those other firms often means meeting studio demands to make the product for as little as possible because they can simply say, well, we'll outsource it or well, we'll go somewhere where it's cheaper because they can always find it cheaper. Yeah. And this is something that, uh, <laughs> This is something that when Jurassic World came out, I did a little bit of reading on because I was like, okay, yeah, this is great. Actually, I hated that movie, but she was running in heels the whole time. That's that got to thing. me so much. I, the credits hadn't even rolled, and I was already tweeting like the most unrealistic part of this was not the giant whale that eats the shark. It was the woman running in heels for two hours. But yeah, so like speaking of that giant whale that eats the shark, I was like, yeah, this is great, and it's awesome and fun and whatever, but it just looks like... It just looks like it's on the computer. I mean, it, it doesn't, to me, look as realistic as the first Jurassic Park, which, of course, they did use special effects. They used visual effects, but they also used special effects. The giant stegosaurus on the ground next to the giant pile of poop that Laura Dern puts her arm into. All of that good stuff. I'm like, why do things these days look just so different so obvious no it's not the claymation godzilla of the 1960s but like it just doesn't look maybe as good as vfx did a couple years ago and i'm saying this as an ignorant podcaster like someone who does not sit behind a computer and create visual effects but anyway but dinosaur poop just isn't the same caroline is that what you're saying that's what i'm saying i know well so i started reading about how really the post-production industry in general but specifically vfx is in such upheaval because of those reasons you were talking about, about having to outbid your competitors, having to promise to keep costs low. And if you can't, it's essentially coming out of your pocket because you've signed on the dotted line that you're going to provide services for this much money. But then you've got people like Ang Lee, uh, who directed The Life of Pi, who they win all sorts of awards for their film, but they're still saying things like, yeah, but I wish it was better, faster, cheaper. Um, and so you end up especially once things start getting outsourced to other countries, you end up having a lot of VFX houses closing their doors. And so this ties back into my initial, like, after Jurassic World, why, why does this look the way it does question? Because if you're having to provide things, uh, you know, faster, cheaper, all of that stuff, it's possible, and listeners, send me letters. Tell me what the real deal is. I want to hear it. But, like, it's possible that there's not the same level of attention to the work going on. Because you just don't have the time, not because you're not a good artist, not because you're not a great VFX house, but because somebody is standing over you going faster, 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 cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. 
So we actually spoke with Kylie Walpena, who's been super vocal both online and in some pretty cool lady-led forums on the Internet uh, about gender issues in the post-production industry. So to give you a little background about who Kylie is, uh, after years as an editor, she now works as a workflow supervisor at a company that manages workflow and dailies for TV and film. So basically, uh, a TV show or a movie will hire her company and her and her workers to manage everything that happens from the camera through the editing and then through to the finishing, including VFX. So uh, Kylie gave us a little perspective on the industry and she helped to illustrate why it's not so rosy, uh, kind of in general. There's also a culture of not wanting to go against the grain because they're going to hire someone else. If you put up a fight and demand an eight-hour day, they probably won't hire you for a job because there are a dozen other people that will fill that role. Or if you're working a gig and you want to leave at a certain time, many people look at you like you're not being a team player, even if you're getting your work done and you're doing it better. And a lot of people might have heard the phrase, we'll fix it in post, but that's actually not a joke. A lot of the stuff runs downhill and people in post end up having to fix stuff at the last minute which can really mess up your day or week or or weekend or whatever. It's expected that you'll do whatever it takes to make the deadline. And some wonder whether that environment might be what deters or outright prevents more women from being and rising within this industry, because it's not ideal for a family life. And we're going to talk more about that when we come right back from a quick break. What we were getting at before the break was essentially that the VFX life is not easy. Um, hashtag VFX life. Seriously. And I mean, I know we're, we're basically talking about a very small segment of the population. This is a very specialized job, a very small, tight knit group of people. Um, but I still think it's worth discussing. Because the problems that these people face, it's just another example that Kristen and I feel like you and I talk about a lot in various aspects of STEM jobs or really any career where the worker isn't provided for, isn't taken care of. And people tend to say like, well, then you're just not cut out for this job. And it's like, well, wait, but why don't we make the industry better for everyone, everyone, men and women, families and unfamilied people alike? And one point of relevance, too, for people who might feel so far removed from any kind of work environment, even marginally, you know, relatable to that, is that we still enjoy the fruits of their labor and of going through like this very intense industry. I mean, I don't think that there is anyone listening who has not benefited entertainment wise from their work. Especially the orcs. Especially the orcs. Orcs need work. <laughs> yes. Yes, they do. And they, they also need gender equality as well. That's right. Feminist orcs. I, I wonder what a lady orc looks like. Probably a lot like a, like a, a dude orc. Except she's just running in high heels. And she's got eyelashes. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, one thing that's often cited in terms of 
people, men or women, who have families working in VFX and it being sort of hostile to that whole situation is the travel thing. Because we were talking about how a lot of jobs get outsourced to other countries. And so it's almost like, well, whether you're a worker in America or whether you're a worker in India, the VFX industry or the Hollywood industry in the machine is not necessarily taking good care of you. And so basically, the VFX work follows the film subsidies, wherever those are, in whatever city or country they are. And the artists have to follow that work. Uh, visual FX artist Philip Brost wrote an open letter to Life of Pi director Ang Lee uh, after Ang Lee said he wished the work had been cheaper. And he said, look, those same subsidies raise overhead, distort the market, and cause wage stagnation in what are already trying economic times. And so if you're a VFX artist, man or woman, chances are you're going to be traveling the world for months at a time, chasing locations. And this is really hard for anyone, especially if you don't have the job security. If you're a freelancer, maybe, if you're relying on this job for any type of benefits, um, of course you're going to feel like your job security is at risk at some point. And not surprisingly, uh, Kylie uh, also had some fascinating perspective on how family life and the crazy industry expectations intersect. And being a parent or not also can change how people think of you in post-production. Knowing the culture of late nights and long days, the people who hire staff may avoid people with children. This is particularly true of women. Men with children are thought of as, they're not thought of as a flight risk because it's assumed they have women around to take care of the kids. But I've talked to really high-level female editors who have cut some of the biggest films of the last 10 years, and they've told me they've been asked in interviews if they have children And that's so illegal, but it happens a lot. And we have to go with it sometimes to get ahead. At the same time, I know some female editors that work with good companies and request certain hours in order to be home with children. And those companies comply because they know the good, the value of good, happy editors. I think people outside the entertainment industry see the same patterns reflected here that happen in all jobs where women are judged harsher for having children and large companies are requiring more and more from people with no regard for their childcare needs. So we have well established that it's tough out there for VFX artists, but let's super duper close up onto women in the industry because as VFX supervisor, Lindy DeQuatro told Jennifer Lee, quote, there are more than there used to be but not as many as there should be. And part of that might have to do with just how long it takes to get any kind of security, much less any advancement within the industry, at least according to a pretty in-depth piece over at TechCrunch. Yeah, and TechCrunch did mention that this is an industry where you can be working for a decade and never encounter a woman in a top-level technical position. And so that starts to breed that whole thing that we've talked about in STEM before of like the hiring bias and all this thing. So like people start to think, oh, well, just women aren't interested. This is just a dude's pursuit. Uh, That's cited over and over again in the comments in some of these articles that like, oh, well, there aren't a lot of women in this industry, which just means that they're not interested. But there's a lot more to it with this job as with any STEM job where there's a gender disparity. But the thing is, speaking of tech jobs and gender disparity, stats are really hard to come by. I didn't realize this, but VFX houses aren't 
tracking their diversity data like other tech companies do. Whereas some tech companies might be like, yeah, we're going to increase our diversity. We're going to like put an effort into hiring women or at least talk about diversity. VFX houses tend to be a little bit more insular. But there are a couple of stats coming from the 2014 Celluloid Ceiling Report. Yeah, it estimated that women accounted for just 5% of all visual effects supervisors working on the top 250 films of 2013, but 91% of those films had no female visual effects supervisors whatsoever. So, of course, then we have to ask the question of why? What's going on? Well, Part of this is related to the fact that it is a STEM job. I mean, it's reflective of what's going on in the broader tech industry, which is something that Lindy DeQuatro pointed out as well, that, you know, if you don't have enough women in STEM in school, then you get into the whole pipeline issue with not enough role models on the industry to really cultivate those girls coming out of school. And then you have all of the barriers that also exist within the industry. So it's it's sort of hurdle after hurdle, as is, you know, reminiscent of of so many of these topics that we've talked about on the podcast before. One of which, as TechCrunch points out, is a super, well, bro-y culture. That's steamy bro culture. That's steamy, sweaty, hairy bro culture. Yeah, Lysol, that that steamy bro culture. That's right. Uh, They cite, and we've talked about this before, uh, conferences with booth babes and like super skin tight motion capture suits. Um, but even then, and I mean, that's, that's okay. You've got your booth babe showing off the suit. Like, that's, I mean, granted, a motion capture suit probably has to be pretty tight. That's related to VFX. Sure. Oh, there's also the issue of women getting groped at conferences. And this is not anecdotal. I'm not just being like, and maybe there's some women who've gotten touched inappropriately. This is something that the filmmaker Mary Liz Thompson, whom we cited earlier, uh, writing for IndieWire, actually reported happened to her. She and some other women were attending a VFX conference, and there was drinking, um and it's a dark room, and she was trying to leave the room and ended up getting groped. She encountered some other women in the bathroom, many of whom were upset because the same thing had happened to them. And as we hear about also in just tech issues at large, there's a lack of awareness about the in-group favoritism that the steamy bro culture, I'm not going to stop saying steamy bros, by the way, that the steamy bros foster sometimes. Mm-hmm. But you know what's interesting? When we talked to Kylie, she was actually saying it's not even really the broiness that's the biggest issue. In post-production, there's generally less of an outright bro culture. It's more of an institutional sexism and gender bias that's pervasive. A lot of people think they aren't sexist, or they don't see or acknowledge the barriers keeping pe- keeping women away. That's almost harder to deal with than outright sexism in many ways, since it's not so blatant as someone, like, smacking your ass or catcalling you or some madman stuff. It's more like the little voice in your head that assumes a woman is a receptionist instead of an executive producer when you walk in the door of a media company. Yeah, and this is the whole idea that we just mentioned a little bit ago, that... 
every comment you see on uh, quotes and articles, comments on articles like, no, we're totally gender blind. It's really like the best man or woman for the job. It just depends on your qualifications, if you're driven, if you're a team player, all this stuff. And it's like, yes, skill absolutely matters. And yes, perhaps there are fewer women applying for these jobs. But there's a general, as author John C. Williams points out in his book about this topic, um, there's also sort of a general uh, denial that an internal bias, hiring bias, uh, promotion bias could exist. It's the thing we've talked about before of like uh, hiring and promoting people who are like you. And it's such a selective hiring process anyway. If your hiring manager doesn't think that women are even available or interested or will stick around after they get pregnant, then there's sort of less of an impetus to try to seek out women for these roles. And this is something that Kylie echoed when we talked to her about the challenges of getting and keeping women in the industry. There are unique aspects to post-production that require its own initiative to get women in the pipeline. Uh, It's an odd cross-section of creativity and engineering, and it's got really specific challenges from day to day. That said, the most basic aspects of gender bias that keep women out of these fields can be applied to pretty much any industry where women are a minority. There is an institutional sexism that keeps women out. That is, men and women make assumptions about what women want. They don't want to work these hours because they want to have kids. They don't like dealing with computers. They aren't interested in this stuff. The idea a lot of people get is that if women wanted to do it, they would, but that's false. If you look at enrollment in media programs like USC or NYU film schools or the media program at Savannah College of Art and Design, which is a large college for more media, less film-type education, the numbers are 50-50 male-female. So women are interested, but there's a bias against hiring them that is so internalized you don't even realize you're doing it. And then there's something called the maternal wall bias, which is not the motherhood off-ramp that it it might sound like it is. It's a little bit more of a bait-and-switch that uh, John C. Williams notes as well, where he he contends that there's this automatic assumption that, oh, it's just culture that drives women out of the industry because they can't handle, you know, being women, but particularly being working mothers within, you know, all of these demands. But in reality, he argues that it's just straight up sexism. You know, stop blaming it on our ovaries, really, and focus on getting the institutional sexism out of the way. And also not enough consideration of the idea that many women are not self-selecting out of the industry. Um, he also cites a study that moms are 79% less likely to be offered a job than equally qualified candidates. So maybe it's not so much of an off-ramp, but just a, a boot out the door. Yeah, so the same, the maternal wall bias absolutely ties into that whole in-group favoritism, uh, unrecognized bias in terms of I'm going to hire and promote people who look like me. Well, people who look like, if I'm a hiring manager and I'm a dude, people who look like me aren't going to get pregnant. And so there could be a bit of that internal bias about, well... You know, she might leave soon to have a baby. So I need somebody who's going to be on this job night and day, 16 hours a day. 
So when it comes to someone to look up to within this industry, at the very tippy top, it seems like, is Victoria Alonso, who was Marvel's longtime VFX VP, who was recently promoted to executive VP of physical production. And she was the first woman to hold such a position. And not only is she, you know, held up as obviously, you know, a success story, she's a mentor, but she's also very outspoken about the need for more women in VFX. Yeah, so she served as a visual effects producer on about a half a dozen films, and she's not only vocal about getting more women into the industry, but she's incredibly vocal about wanting to be a visible role model for girls and women. She herself cites pioneering producer Kathleen Kennedy as her own role model. There's a story that is oft repeated about, uh, you know, having grown up seeing Kathleen Kennedy's names on movie posters like E.T. and being like, that's a lady. I can do that. I'm going to do anything I can to get in this industry. And, you know, she talks about finally meeting Kennedy and crying and they're crying together. And she said she dorked out all this stuff. Um, and at the October 2014 Visual Effects Society Summit, Alonzo uh, got a lot of press by urging VFX companies to work to reduce that gender disparity because she says it will improve the work. And she told this room, you've got to get the girls in here, boys. It's better when it's 50-50. And she says that women bring a balance that you need. And she also gave advice to would-be VFX women. Uh, she tells them to fill the gap, do any job that gets you there, which, of course, is in direct uh, contradiction to what Mary Liz Thompson said, which was like, to pay the bills, I had to take every job I could, and now I can't get full-time work because nobody understands what my specialty is. It seems like Alonzo is the Sheryl Sandberg of the VFX industry. Oh, absolutely, because she does disagree with that author, John C. Williams, who we just cited. Uh, she says the gender disparity does have a lot to do with motherhood, and this her sentiment totally echoes Lean In, and it's worth noting that Alonzo herself is a mother. She says this is a tough road for women, not because it's a world of men, but because it takes a certain amount of time to be in a supervisory position, and by that time, you're having to make a decision about having children or not, which means you have to take a break. If you take a break, you're out of the game, and once you're out of the game, it's hard to get back in the game. I hate this game. Oh, it sounds like the worst game. But I mean, that does that is indirect contradiction also to Williams's discussion of the maternal wall bias that like, no, women aren't self-selecting themselves out of the pool. They're just not getting the same opportunities from the get go anyway. Um, And so Alonzo said that once women decide to have children, about half don't come back to the business. Quote, so we're back to trying to fill in the 50% that left. We're consistently trying to fill that gap of women who leave. But Alonzo is also like, as much as you're, you might be like fist pumping, like, yeah, women lean into orcs. Uh, Alonzo is like a, she's a super controversial figure in the industry because the industry itself, like as we've talked about in detail, is experiencing a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of problems. People can't spend time with their families. They're traveling all over the world. Maybe they don't have set benefits or set pay. Uh, Maybe they're being abused at work because everybody's saying do everything faster and cheaper. And so there's a lot of people who are saying not only that it's not a gender issue, it's an industry issue, but also that Alonzo might be part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, she is someone who is 
having to oversee Marvel's bottom line. And so she needs things faster and cheaper as well because she has people that she has to, you know, be accountable to as well. So, I mean, it, it, she's kind of having to straddle both worlds of championing more women hopping into this role that ultimately on the other side of it isn't terribly supported by people like her. So this is a big reason why blogger VFX soldier kind of wonders like, Alonzo, why are you even encouraging more women to get into this job? It's awful out here. Yeah. He wrote that studios like Marvel and executives like Alonzo have made the decision that create an environment that she acknowledges is extremely difficult for women to participate in. He writes, anyone can preach platitudes, but it takes real leadership to propose a policy that implements those goals and executes it. And VFX Soldier goes on to cite, it's funny, I, I like citing VFX Soldier as if it's a name, but VFX Soldier cites the example of Walt Disney Animation Studios, which continues, he says, to make great movies with huge profits while offering their workforce union wages with overtime, paid maternity leave, and other benefits. Oh, he writes, and they do this without subsidy-induced displacement of their workers. And that's one thing, Kristen, that I forgot to mention earlier, which is that you've got all of this like crap going on in this industry, but there's also no unions or guilds to help workers fight for what they need. And so how do we get and keep more women in VFX? A lot of it ties into how do you take care of workers in general? Yeah, I mean, one thing that DeQuatra suggests is uh, getting rid of the disparity by prioritizing hiring women in technical fields. I mean, it's the whole, you know, STEM Fill the gender gap. Close the gender gap, I should say. Just fill it up. <laughs> Just fill it up with that uh, that insulation foam. Mm. Um, but, you know, hire more women, basically. Yeah, and TechCrunch was like, yes, of course, hiring practices need to be looked at, but also focus on the distribution of responsibilities, performance evaluation, and how the current dysfunction of these processes breeds an overall bias that colors the view of female competence. It's a cycle. If you don't believe, if you don't see women, then you don't believe they're there or they're capable. Or that they want to be there. Or that they want to be there. And so that the women who are there have to work triple hard to prove themselves, which is, again, same with a lot of STEM and or male-dominated industries. And as you might expect, we talked to Kylie about this, too, and she totally agrees. Here's her take on attracting and keeping women in the industry. Merely having a diverse staff, a mix of minorities and genders, is a great way to attract women in the post-production industry. A diverse staff works better together and creates better work, and it becomes self-correcting in that the gender or racial bias that persists falls to the wayside when so many of the people you work with have their own experiences to share. By changing your culture to be inherently more accepting and interesting, you create a more friendly environment with fewer institutionalized barriers. Of course, you can also add other support systems like flexible work hours, health care, child care, but in post-production, that would be a major endeavor. So I stick to the basics. Just hire women. Higher minorities, lots of them. Consider correcting the numbers your own moral imperative, and the rest will work itself out. And VFX Soldier cites Walt Disney Animation Studios as an example of doing it right in this regard. 
Yeah, he says, listen, guys, you've got to mitigate the use of subsidies that constantly displace VFX families. You've got to initiate a limit on those long work hours by making overtime pay a standard across the industry. Right now, you might work, you know, 20 hours a day. That doesn't mean you're going to earn overtime. And he says you've got to mandate that vendors provide proper maternity leave, child care, and health care to VFX professionals. And how about everybody else while we're at it? How about we all get great paternity and maternity leave and child care? So our listeners out there might be wondering why and whether we should even care about this. After all, it's not like VFX is a huge industry. It's not like this affects every one of our listeners. I mean, it is a pretty small segment of the population. But when we talked to Kylie, she was adamant that the gender issues in VFX and post-production in general are part of a larger issue in the film industry. The sexist culture has a major effect on workers and then on what viewers see on screen. There's a pattern here. Women hire women and they put women on screen to inspire other women. But for women to get to the point where they can hire, they have to make it through a really tricky pipeline. That's why diversity efforts are so important. Uh, An interesting anecdote, the, the showrunner for The Shield found that the female writers weren't speaking up anymore in the writer's room. And he found out the reason was because they were constantly being interrupted by men. When they spoke up, they were being seen as too emotional or aggressive. So the showrunner banned interruptions in the writer's room. So what's our takeaway for for this women in VFX Hollywood STEM conversation, do you think? Well, I think Alonzo's right in that if you diversify your team, you're only going to get a better product. You know, men aren't the only ones who can create massive works of visual effect art. Obviously, women can do this, too. Um, but it's that it goes back to that importance of, like I said, diversifying the team to get a different and better perspective and hopefully, like, make a better product on screen, too, because every movie pretty much, uses VFX these days. I'm really curious to know if there are people in VFX or people who hope to get into VFX listening. We definitely want to hear from you because it seems like there is a lot of conversation within your, yes, niche industry um, happening. So fill us in. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuff Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have one here from Anne on our Gendered Kitchens episode. She says, hey, ladies, I've been working my way through your podcast, but your most recent one really got me thinking. A friend of the family recently opened a restaurant. Shout out to Jen at Strange Bird Bistro in Oberlin, Ohio. And it's been exciting to watch her open. Her significant other, who's a guy, is often referred to as the owner, and he always politely corrects people that the owner is actually Jen. Funny how people assume the owner would be a guy. She worked as a waitress for many years, but has always been an excellent cook. She had plans to start a food truck, but then she was approached by one of the restaurants she'd previously worked at, and the rest is history. It's so nice to see lady-run businesses, and I wish her much success. As we do. So thanks, Anne. Well, I've got a letter here from JKM about our 
Gendered Chef episode. She writes, I was recently introduced to your podcast and have been chain listening while at work ever since and must say you guys are awesome. Thanks, JKM. It was refreshing to hear y'all talk about the lack of women in professional kitchens as it's a sore spot for me. As a self-proclaimed displaced pastry chef, I work on the line at a very popular organic bar and restaurant that doesn't sell dessert, and I'm not only the only woman in the kitchen, I'm also the only one with a culinary degree or any professional training for that matter. I'm constantly fighting the she-can't-do-it stereotype, not only for myself, but for new hires as well, since my kitchen manager will only hire women for certain stations like salad and prep. It chaps me, but what are you going to do? Bills have to be paid, and I love to cook. P.S. Alex Gornichelli rocks. So, thanks for your insight, JKM, and keep it up. And hey, maybe you should go to Oberlin and try to get a a job there. I love uh, hearing about women starting their own restaurants, too. Entrepreneurialism. Do it, ladies. I mean, if you like, if you want to do it, of course. But now I want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about women in visual effects, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 